Hey, this is Delitra. Hey, everybody. This is Angela. And you're listening to Nutrient Sisters, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn how to nourish your body and soul. Welcome back to another episode of the Nutrient Sisters podcast. Hope everyone is having a great day wherever you are. We're back with another great episode for you. Today, we are discussing fertility. If you remember in a conversation that we had last season with Dr. LaToya, I discussed my openness to having children. So this would not only be helpful for myself, but also for our listeners who are interested in conceiving. Also, being mindful of the wake of the current state in America, I believe that understanding fertility can be helpful for women who are actively preventing pregnancy. So we have a special guest with us today to help us navigate this conversation because I am certainly not an expert when it comes to that. We have Dr. Sweldo joining us today. She is a double certified fertility specialist. Uh, she has completed her residency training at UCSF Fresno and her fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of Connecticut. She is a world-renowned speaker nationwide and internationally, a go-to local media women's expert, women's health expert, excuse me, and has held several positions within the women's health community. She is passionate about empowering women through education about their fertility, and we are so excited to have her on the podcast today. Dr. Suato, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I am super excited to be here and even more pumped after that amazing introduction. So thank you. No problem. The first question I did want to ask, I wanted to learn more about what a fertility specialist does. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what's interesting is in medicine, we love long words and acronyms. Um, so basically, I'm an OBGYN by training. So that that is my background is women's health um, medicine. But then there are a certain percentage of us that will actually go on for additional training. And it's three years after you're done. It's three more years focusing on all things hormones and fertility. So basically, anything that is within the realm of reproductive hormones or the fertility journey would fall within my scope of practice. Okay, great. Okay, so that's good to know that there's some additional training that OBGYNs can do because I feel like I've just seen just a regular OBGYN for my annual, uh, well, it's not annual, I think sometimes it's every three years for women, for my women's health visit and if I have any other issues, but I don't have experience working with or visiting a fertility specialist. So it's good to know. Exactly. So every woman should be having an annual visit with her regular OBGYN. As part of that regular annual visit, really sort of the reproductive planning conversation should come up, whether that is, you know, actively avoiding pregnancy or actively seeking pregnancy. So you always kind of want to at least have that one-liner question in your annual visit and then yes or no and sort of what are you actively doing for each of those responses. I think what you're referring to with the three years is the new pap smear guidelines, which definitely have extended out how often women have to get screened. So for our pap smears, Depending on the what test is done, it can range anywhere from three to five years. Can you tell me what 
a fertility specialist does? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. So my background is actually an OBGYN. So infertility specialists are first OBGYNs for the most part. And then after we finish our our general women's health training, we then go on to do three years of a, a fellowship, which is a specialty training in only sort of reproductive hormones and the fertility journey. So anything that has to do with reproductive hormones or infertility would fall within my scope of practice. So we have to be double board certified to remain sort of, you know, up to date with all our accreditation. So we take a written exam for OBGYN, an oral exam for OBGYN, and then we do the same for REI, which is just an acronym for a fertility specialist. We do a written exam, we do an oral exam, and then we have yearly maintenance of certification that we all keep up with. I'm so glad to know that there's additional training that can happen to specialize and help out individuals specifically with fertility. Yeah, a lot of training, a lot. So (laughs) you were needing all the things. I was like, wow. (laughs) And I'm wondering how often someone should visit their OBGYN. Yeah, so that's another great question. So women should have a yearly annual exam with their OBGYN provider. And when I say exam, really, I mean visit. You don't have to do a pelvic exam at every visit. But basically, every woman should have a yearly well woman visit with their OBGYN provider. And then the the pap smear screening, which is the actual pelvic exam checking for cervical cancer screening, that has actually now been extended. And so instead of doing that every year, depending on the test that's done, we do that um, every three to five years now. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, because the last time I was there, they were like, I I scheduled for a year and they were like, why are you doing that? (laughs) So, Yeah, yeah. so, So I definitely encourage women to be seeing their provider once a year. I think that that's important because we cover a lot of other things outside of just the pap smear screening. And for most women, that may be their only visit to a doctor in the year if they have no other health issues. So whether you're seeing a primary care provider or an OBGYN, you really should have at least one annual visit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's what I do. I I only go to see my OBGYN. That's it. <laughs> yeah. and, and you are honestly, that is probably the most common thing that we hear from patients is their OBGYN is the only doctor they see. So you want to be seeing them at, at least once a year because they are, again, they are covering a lot of other things other than just your pap smear. And sort of as it relates to my specialty, um, they are also covering the fertility journey and specifically reproductive planning. Um, all women should really be, if they're sexually active, um, really should be either actively avoiding pregnancy or actively seeking pregnancy. And so that conversation, you know, could, could definitely start with the OBGYN first in terms of where they want to take that, that reproductive planning journey. Wow. So, yeah, that's so, okay. In my head, like when you say fertility specialist, like I didn't realize that was really like a thing. I just thought people could like, you know, get down and dirty and then like, you know, kind of just get pregnant. So what, what exactly would a fertility specialist like do? 
Yeah. So that's, that's, you guys are asking awesome questions. This is great. Um, so what's interesting is that if you look at the stats, anywhere from 10 to 15% of reproductive age couples in the U.S. suffer from infertility. So first, yeah. let's define that as the difficulty with conception. So I always clarify, it's not the inability to get pregnant, it is the difficulty to get pregnant. And so seeing a fertility specialist can be super important because they can definitely do testing to see if there's anything wrong that's potentially fixable. And they also can do fertility treatments to try and increase the chance of pregnancy every month that you're trying. So we do do, there's actually quite a few things that we do as it relates to fertility. Now, there are all other diseases that we treat besides infertility. So for example, if a patient is having irregular cycles, let's say she skips two or three months, um, you know, she maybe gets four periods in a year. So that's definitely not quote unquote normal. So I always tell people, if you are a young, healthy, reproductive age female, you should be getting a regular monthly cycle if you're not taking any sort of birth control. So if that's not happening, then an evaluation is needed to assess why. And that evaluation is really regardless of your desire for pregnancy, because that means that there's something underlying that needs to be addressed. Hmm. Good to know. Okay. And thank you for giving that definition for um, infertility, because sometimes I get confused when women who have already have children, they say that they're struggling with infertility when it comes to trying to conceive for the second or third child. And I didn't understand how that definition, I was like, well, aren't you already fertile? Cause we already, you already have a kid. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. So, so what people don't know is that secondary infertility, which is what you're describing is a very real thing. So when we diagnose infertility, it, it's either primary if they have not been pregnant before or secondary if they have been pregnant before and are now str- struggling to conceive again. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Thank you. That's that's good information. And going back to the frequency of visiting an, an OBGYN, I think there's a lot of people that don't have, they just, they just don't know how often they should see their provider. Or when I was a teenager, um, there was the belief that you you had to be sexually active in order to see an OBGYN. Um, although now I'm aware that an OBGYN deals with a lot of different other things uh, that could be helpful. And I'm also thinking that there may be some hesitation, like with Angela, scheduling an annual visit because insurance might not cover that visit. Yeah. So you're, yeah. So I definitely, I definitely would clarify with insurance, but one thing is to cover the pap smear screening itself. And you're right because the screening guidelines have changed. They may not cover the actual pap smear testing. Um, if, if it's, you know, done more frequently than currently recommended, but as far as the actual visit, um, we strongly, strongly encourage women to be seeking out healthcare at least once a year um, with their provider. And again, OBGYNs or primary care, because they're going to be looking at an, a lot of things. Are your vaccinations up to date? Are you due for any vaccines? Um, is there any blood work that we should be checking? Cholesterol, diabetes, thyroid, all of those things would fall within the scope of an annual screening for an OBGYN as well as your primary. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I've also talked about my mental health with my OBGYN before, too. Exactly. So it's like, oh, great. She can help me with a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. 
So when it comes to someone thinking about seeing a fertility specialist, specialist, excuse me, when should they? How do they know that it's time to to speak to someone like you? Yeah. So um, I'm I'm going to qualify my answer. So before before I give you sort of the textbook version, mm-hmm. um, what I always tell patients is if you are um, if you have questions. And if those questions are not being answered, you know, adequately for you, then it's time to seek out a fertility specialist. Um, So you at any time is really okay, even if you're not looking to do treatment, you just need consultation and counseling. So I just want to qualify my answer with that. Um, But as we move forward and talk about sort of, you know, when is a patient considered infertile? When is a workup indicated? Typically, we use time. So if the woman is under the age of 35 and she's been actively trying for a year or longer, uh, then it's time to do an infertility evaluation typically performed by the fertility specialist. If that patient is over 35, we actually cut that down to six months because we know that ovarian aging, and we can talk about that in a minute, but ovarian aging accelerates after age 35. And so we don't want to wait as long. There are other reasons to seek out help sooner. So again, I mentioned earlier that irregular cycles, if somebody has very painful periods or significant pain with intercourse that's not normal, there might be an underlying fertility issue there known as endometriosis. So that might be something to discuss with a fertility specialist. And also if there's any risk factors in the history. So let's say, um, you know, if the female patient has a male partner and he has a known history um, that could impact his sperm production, if she has a known history that could impact her uh, fertility, for example, you know, previous um, sexually transmitted diseases or STDs, you know, any genetic history in the family, et cetera. So there are additional risk factors beyond just the time uh, definition that we would use to seek out the, the help of a fertility specialist. Okay. Oh, wow. So you, ha- you would have to wait at least a year if you're under 35, fairly normal. I mean, so fairly you actually healthy. don't have to, um, but when patients ask, how do you define infertility? So when do I know I need to see a fertility specialist? That time definition is the most commonly used one. Um, But I always, like I said in the beginning, like, you know, if you are having questions or if you're anxious and you don't feel like those questions are being appropriately answered either by your primary care provider or by your OBGYN, you can always seek out help sooner. You do not have to Mm -hmm. wait, um, you know, the full six months or the full 12 months um, to see a fertility specialist. Yeah, because I... And I don't know if there's any truth to this, so maybe you could also, like, speak on that. But I feel like infertility, um, I don't know if, like, I don't know how to say it. It's on the rise, I guess. Like, I feel like it's more heavily talked about now than it um, was before. Um, And so do you think that it'll change to the point where, like, maybe we need to, like, get checked out before we even begin that journey? That is such a great question. So the fir- so the, there's a couple parts to that answer. So the first part is talking about infertility on the rise. And I think it's a two-part answer. So the first one is, yes, we, we know and we see that there are higher rates of infertility post-industrial revolution. Um, and we believe that that is due to, generally speaking, environmental toxins that weren't around beforehand. Hmm. and the fact that women are delaying childbearing. So if the average age 
and I'm just throwing out arbitrary numbers here, but if in the 50s, the average age was 25, now the average age is 35 or something like that. So there's been a shift to delay childbearing. And again, coming back to that ovarian aging piece. Um, And so, so for those two reasons, we believe that there are it's more common now. But the second part that you mentioned, I think is just as important, which is infertility used to be extremely taboo. Even when I was going through my training um, in the mid 2000s, you know, patients were very, very private about their fertility journey. Mm. And I credit Hollywood with a lot of that. They have really sort of normalized the conversation and really brought it to the dinner table. Um, albeit with a Hollywood twist. So, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Not everything you see on TV is real, but I do give them credit for at least, you know, taking away that secrecy, taking away that shame and really normalizing it as part of our everyday conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, cause I, I so I'm not going to blast, put them on blast, but I have two people who are very close to me who are currently going through some issues. And, you know, I was talking with my grandma and she was just like, we didn't have this problem back in my day. Like we were just worried (laughs) about getting pregnant to begin with, you know. And so it is kind of like weird. And I feel like now um, on social media, I see things that affect men too. Like I feel like it might have used to be like a just a female issue, but now mm-hmm. I see um like I think I just saw an article that said something like climate change was leading to like less sperm for men. I don't know if that's true, but just the fact that like now we also talk about it in terms of men and their fertility or is that wait, can men Yeah, be, so I wait. think I think what <laughs> okay. you're seeing is is two things. So one is there's a cultural shift, right? Like before this was only a female problem. Um and so female so the research in infertility for females is actually a lot more um there it's a, there's a lot more longevity to it. We know a lot more than on the male side. Um and I think that part of that is cultural for sure. Um but I I'm happy to see that men are becoming part of the conversation. Remember that, you know, in in a sort of male dominant society, sort of the machoism or, or, you know, the manhood that comes along with the fertility is very hand in hand. And so any issues with male fertility, you know, obviously it is not going to be something that men are going to talk about openly. Um, but when you actually do the breakdown of the causes of infertility, uh, men are equally Um, as affected when you look at the breakdown. So approximately 30% of the time, there's an issue in the female, approximately 30% of the time, there's an issue in the male, and then 20% of the time, there's an issue in both. Um, And then Mm. 20% of the time, we actually don't find, we have a negative evaluation. That's what we call unexplained or undiagnosed infertility. And I, I tell patients, it's not actually unexplained. It's that the testing available today is just not finding what the problem is. Right. Okay. Right. Wow. Yeah. I actually, I was on Instagram today watching something that's not related to fertility, but it was, uh, I can't even remember the account, but the grandmother was talking to her granddaughter and I think her granddaughter just got engaged and, uh, the grandma was like, wait, when are you going to get pregnant? And she's like, mom, I mean, grandma, I'm young. I'm only 25. And she said, mm-hmm. I had my babies at 20. Like that's old mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I couldn't, it's, it would be difficult for me to think about myself being 25 and having a kid. I know women do it, but there's still right. so much that you don't know. So I do see older age, other older women, I don't want to put quotes around that, um, pursuing fertility, like 39, 40, they're like, okay, 
my life is pretty good so far secure. And now I want to have a child, but I know after 30, 30, age 35, there can be some difficulty, I believe in conceiving. Um, yeah. And I think that's why, and that's a part of the, a huge part why I, I am on sort of these social media platforms is because I think to your point, um, you know, education about fertility is more important than ever because now there's something that we can actually do about it. So um, in 2012, ASRM, which is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, uh, deemed egg freezing no longer experimental. It was now considered standard of care and it's been part of our fertility practice now, at least for the last decade. Um, and so women have the option, um, albeit it's not quite as easy or straightforward as I'm describing it, but now there is an option to potentially freeze your eggs at 25, 26, 27, so that when mm. you are 39 or 40, if you're having difficulty, then you can look back to that insurance policy that you made for yourself. So it, it's not it's not quite as easy as what I described, but it's an option that we didn't have, you know, as recently as 10 years ago. Yeah. No, that's, that's good to know. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you know, but most women until they're in their mid to late thirties or until they're having problems, aren't aware about a lot of these things, which is why education is so important. Mm, right. Yes. Which they, they take of, away from us. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of education, I feel like there's not a lot of education about the menstrual cycle in yes. general, I feel like I'm learning more and more and I'm 31 now. So <laughs> just to say that, but I just remember, you know, you get your period, it uh, lasts about seven days and that's it. And not realizing that it's a whole like 28 day or, or more process. Um, can you tell us what happens during the menstrual cycle? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to try and break it down like as briefly as I can. I actually have a YouTube video that's, that's you know, specifically dedicated to this. But generally okay. speaking, there are four hormones that are really driving everything. So the brain releases a hormone called FSH or follicle stimulating hormone, which tells the ovary, OK, ovary, it's time to get to work. And so the ovary produces a follicle. Um, that follicle is a sac that houses an egg and that follicle makes estrogen. So as estrogen rises, the, the, your, your uterine lining is thickening up. The brain gets turned off saying, okay, brain, we're, we're good. You, can, you don't have to stimulate me anymore. And then at a certain point, that estrogen level triggers ovulation. So the hormone of ovulation is called LH or luteinizing hormone, and it typically happens mid-cycle. So when women are tracking their ovulation and they're using ovulation predictor kits or OPKs, again, we love our acronyms, um, <laughs> so what they're testing for is that LH hormone. And so mm. that LH hormone provokes the rupture of that sac and release of the egg into the pelvis. And it also, it, it does a lot of other things, but the other big thing is it starts the production of progesterone. So progesterone is the big hormone in the second half of the cycle. And it really keeps the uterine lining sort of stable to receive a potential embryo. And that yeah. progesterone hormone is being made by something called the corpus luteum, which is basically just the cyst from where the egg was released. Okay. And then that corpus luteum lasts for about two weeks. So if at the end of two weeks, there's no pregnancy, the corpus luteum goes away. 
it doesn't make any more estrogen and progesterone. So those hormones fall. And with those hormones falling, we get a period. And then that FSH, that stimulating hormone starts to be released again to start, to start the next cycle, which is why, as I said in the beginning, an, a normal, healthy, reproductive age woman should be having these regular monthly cycles. Now, what hmm. may vary is the timing of the cycle. So all the textbooks use 28 as kind of the classic um, description. But really, plus minus a week is also considered normal. So anywhere from 21 to 35 is also considered normal. And the reason that that's important is because if you have a 28-day cycle, and we know that the corpus luteum lasts two weeks, which means ovulation is going to happen around day 14 for you. But if you have a 35-day cycle, and we know the corpus luteum lasts two weeks, then you're not going to ovulate until almost cycle day 21. So it's, it's important to be keeping track and sort of understanding your cycle length, not so much the days of bleeding, but really from first day of full flow to first day of full flow, how many days are passing? So 28, 30, 32, whatever that number is, because then you can look back at a three or four month history and you can actually have a pretty good prediction of when you're going to be ovulating. Okay. Oh, goodness. Delitra, <laughs> I want to thank you for bringing me back to school. Yes, um. I know. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm really trying to keep it simple. It's, it's, it yeah. really, it's a truly complex process. And, and frankly, from a, from a kind of science nerd standpoint, it's so beautiful, like that how intricate and how many things have to like interplay and come together. Um, so it's yeah. really quite amazing. So I, I tried to simplify it as much as possible. No, you did great. I'm just mad that Delisha was like, let's get back to biology. No, No, it was helpful. It was helpful. You did great. And it's crazy for me to think that all this is happening in my body every month and I have no idea what's going on. And I'm like, if I don't know, then I know there's plenty of women out there that don't know Mm -hmm. uh, what's happening as well. So I think this is, that was great, a great explanation yeah, yeah cool. definitely things they don't th- like. I feel like, and I like my OBGYN, but I feel like there might be some stuff that she could do a little bit better. Like I feel like, like uh, when when I asked to go on on birth control, it was just kind of like, okay, like here's one that I like recommend. Like it wasn't really like a thorough conversation of mm-hmm. like, well, let's like test this and let's do this. And like, you know, like I feel like you were like, you were diving in like, Hey, and I will say, you know, not to, not to dig my OBGYN colleagues. Cause they, they really like, they're covering so much in an annual visit This is like Mm. just one piece of their conversation with the patient. For me, this is all I do all day, every day. And so when a patient's meeting with me, like we're like deep diving into all of this. So, I mean, I'm literally asking like, you know, how heavy is your flow and days? And I mean, we're just (laughs) getting into the nitty gritty. So it's just, it's a different perspective or a different scope. But I do think that if women in general had were better educated just in general, whether that's school or out of school or whatever you know format or on social media now that we have access to it or podcasts like this one, um, I think that that would also excuse me, alleviate the burden of the OBGYN provider to cover like the 25 things that they need to in depth, you know? 
Right. Yeah, that's true. I'm not going to knock her just because I only go once a year. So <laughs> it's, also like, it's also on me to, yeah, like m- go more often and have more conversations with her. <laughs> right. Well, and I would say to that point too, which I think is a great point you bring up, like, you know, for most women, they're not really thinking about it. And I would say it's at least worth the one-liner question, right? Like, are you thinking about pregnancy? Yes or no. And if you're not thinking about pregnancy, how are you preventing it? If you are thinking about pregnancy, what are you doing to become pregnant, right? Like there should never really be a time where a woman is sort of static and like kind of in limbo and not really actively doing one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'll be honest and tell you, I will never be thinking about um, giving, about uh, fertility, giving birth, any of those things. I'm not interested <laughs> in that. But, it, it, but Delitra is, Delitra. Right. Um, so do you feel like that's helpful? No, it's very helpful. And I talked to my provider, who's a nurse practitioner, and she actually went over the menstrual cycle with me, but I feel like I still need more education. So I'm happy to hear Dr. Swaldo's information that she gave us about that. So considering that everybody's cycle is different and ovulation is a very important phase to conceive a child, how can a woman track where she is in her menstrual cycle? Obviously, you know, when you're bleeding, you know, that's the period, but (laughs) otherwise, how do they know? Yeah. So there, there's a couple ba- kind of basic things. So one is, are you on any form of hormone anything? Um, because obviously those hormones are going to impact, right? So, right. Um, you know, I've had patients come to me wanting to get pregnant and they're using progesterone daily every day for the month. Well, that progesterone daily is going imp- to is going to impede or inhibit ovulation. Um, you know, so, so that it sounds really basic, but that's like one sort of, you know, baseline thing or foundational thing. Another thing is, are you having any, are you having regular monthly periods or not? So I have patients who get periods every three or four months and they're trying to track ovulation. And it's super frustrating, right? Because you have no idea when to even start testing, you know, when you think you might be ovulating. Um, And so by and large, those women, I always tell them like, don't worry about the ovulation predictor kit. Make sure you're getting evaluated for your irregular cycles because more than likely, your ovulation is not regular and you're going to need some help from a fertility specialist. Um, So number one, you know, medications, number two, regular monthly cycles. And then number three, um, most of my patients have an app. Um, I would say in the era of Roe v. Wade and everything that's happening in this country, um, you know, tracking in in a calendar or a, you know, a notebook is just as effective as any of the apps out there. Um, because essentially what you want is you just want a history of, okay, over the last three months, how long were my cycles? And that will help you um, know a, a, around when ovulation will be occurring. The, the best one and the one that we like and the one we encourage patients to use is an ovulation predictor kit. And those okay. are purchased over the counter. You don't need a prescription for them. Um, they're going to be in the feminine hygiene aisle right next to the pregnancy test and whatnot. You just have to look for ovulation test. And for most patients, we advise them to start testing somewhere around cycle day 10 to 12, knowing that they're going to get a positive around day 14. So they see a couple days of negative and then they'll see a positive. But again, going back to that patient of a 35-day cycle, 
for her, it's not going to be until day 21. So if she starts testing day 10, then we're going to be like 12 days in before she gets a positive. So that's why knowing your cycle length is also important. But ovulation predictor kits is definitely where we recommend patients start in the setting of normal monthly cycles. When you get the positive ovulation predictor kit, you want to have intercourse that day and the next day. Um, So we talk about, you know, intimacy becoming medicalized during this whole process. And so using the ovulation predictor kit allows you to kind of compartmentalize and say, okay, you know, my positive, the day of the positive, the day after, that's going to be baby making sex. And then the rest of the time, it's going to be about connection and intimacy. So I think that's also helpful to the couple. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. That's really good to know. This just sparked something in my brain. Um, So the, I don't know what it's specifically called, but there's one where you, you track using your temperature. Is that a thing? Yeah, it's called BBT or basal body (laughs) temperature. And essentially what they recommend is that you check it every single day um, of the month. And essentially it'll give you kind of a spike um, just after ovulation has happened. So again, you can kind of look back and in hindsight, see when ovulation happened. Um, The reason that I don't like it is only because it's variable patient to patient. It's super stressful to have to do something the entire month, like every single day for the next however many months that you're trying. And and it doesn't, it's not any different than using the predictor kit. So it's actually more helpful than the, excuse me, it's less helpful than the predictor kit. The OPK is more helpful for that. So um, for me, I typically don't encourage the basal body temperature, but it's definitely something that can be done. Okay. 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 That's good to know. Yeah. And with the the ovulation predictor kit, are is that the urine test that I see yep. where okay, yep, where they have the exactly. strips of the test? Okay, mm. okay, perfect. Wow. Let's let's get into my favorite part of this fertility thing, which um, <laughs> Doctor Swaldo. I don't know if you did. You ever watch The Hills, like in the early two yeah. thousand? Okay, so you know Heidi Monta Monta. Yes, I sure do. Oh, okay. Yes. I this is recently, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Right. Yeah. Okay. I've been wanting to ask this question to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. But okay. So, okay. So, my favorite thing about this whole fertility thing is that there's a lot of stuff on, on, in social media, on the market, supplements, products, stuff like that. Heidi Montag, like a couple of months ago, we wrote a little post about her on our Instagram. Her doctor mentioned that in order to boost her fertility, she should eat a raw meat diet. So we were like, Delitra and I were like talking about it. And um, I mean, I think she's already kind of like, there were some some instant instances where she kind of maybe went off the deep end. But and I felt <laughs> like this just wasn't a true like. I don't know who she saw, but I feel like a raw meat diet isn't really going to boost your fertility, (laughs) but you could speak to that. But is there anything that you do know, like health wise that like we should be take, are there any supplements or anything? Sure. Sure. So, um, (laughs) okay. Let's see. I'm trying to think about how to answer this in kind of a PC way. Um, so the the (laughs) first thing, (laughs) the first thing I'll start off with as far as supplements go, let's start there because that's, that's an easier answer. Um, as far as supplements go, everyone's going to recommend a prenatal vitamin with at least 400 micrograms of folic acid in it. Um, Hmm. that I think is universally accepted. Now, every, every fertility specialist may have additional supplements that they think may be helpful. 
And depending on what the underlying disease is, there may be supplements that we specifically recommend to certain patients. Um, so outside of a prenatal vitamin, I would say def- that has folic acid, I would say definitely chat with your doc about what might be indicated for your particular case. So I think that that's kind of an easy one. Um, There are a ton of supplements out there. You know, the data, it's tough to do um, really good studies because as you know, supplements are not FDA regulated. Um, And so in terms of, you know, how much is in each one, et cetera. But I think we can all universally agree a prenatal vitamin with at least 400 milligrams of folic acid, everyone's going to recommend that you take. For me personally, I also like to recommend uh, vitamin D, D as in David, just because most of us are deficient. Um, Mm. And then in my practice, there are a few other supplements that we work with. So that's kind of my generalized answer for supplements. As far as diet goes, I have recently have actually done quite a bit of research on this, and I have not found a single study that raw meat diets are in any way helpful to fertility. So what I typically encourage patients um, is going to be on, yes, protein, but more so the lean proteins, Um, things like chicken, fish, you know, even plant-based proteins are also good, complex whole grains. So switching out, uh, well, sugar and flour are kind of discounted, but switching out your your white carbs for your complex whole grains, Um, and then, you know, lots of produce. And, you know, we can, there's also a further breakdown of that, um, but trying to minimize dairy, minimizing uh, red meats, and then minimizing fruit just because of the fructose in it. So, uh, you know, and, and kind of to summarize or generalize, if patients wanted one thing, sort of the Mediterranean diet, I think, encompasses that, everything I just described the best. The only sort of qualifier I'll say is I think the data is still you know, we don't have solid data that there is one particular fertility diet to boost a patient's fertility. So I think there's definitely things patients can do to optimize their nutrition and optimize, you know, their well-being and their health. And I think that as a consequence is going to have an impact on their underlying fertility. That was great. Yes. You know, Heidi had, you know, she got, she had her doctor and whatever happened between them happened and, you know, it clearly helped her. But, um, but I'm glad that you, you said that there was no real study because, you know, sometimes celebrities are persuasive and can affect the larger mass of people. So I'm glad that you came out and, and kind of said that. Definitely. Um, and I, um, not only her, but also I read recently that Courtney Kardashian said her doctor recommended she drink sperm from her partner. Um, oh gosh, I yeah, saw that. Yeah, that came out as well. <laughs> so again, you know, I, I will always give credit to Hollywood for making this sort of not taboo anymore and, and making this part of our regular social sort of societal conversation. But <laughs> everything that comes from them, you definitely have to take with a grain of salt for sure. <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I'm just disgusted now. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. I, I know. That. I feel like Deleuze is not really is so involved in the media like I, I am. I, I love I celebrity culture. I my <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny. <laughs> Well, okay. So you mentioned a healthy diet. Um, are there any other ways to kind of keep your hormones healthy per se? Ooh, um, that's a great, that's a great question. So, you know, as far as hormones go, there's a lot of things that are going to impact that. Um, and, and I, I generalize that term using lifestyle optimization. 
So when we talk about lifestyle optimization, and I'm actually talking about that um, to some degree on my social media this month, um, we talk about caffeine intake, we talk about alcohol, um, you know, we talk about substances, um, different, you know, exposures, whatnot. Um, we also talk about environmental toxins. So for example, there is actually a couple studies on hairstylists that work in salons and are exposed to those chemicals all day, every day. Um, we tend to see higher rates of infertility in them. Anecdotally, mm. my long distance truck drivers, I tend to see increased risk of infertility in them, my firefighters. So people who are going to be exposed to those um, toxins in the workplace. So that all of that sort of, you know, goes under the umbrella of lifestyle optimization and then definitely weight. Um, and so we know, and this has been published by ASRM, which is my governing body, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, that women who are underweight um, or women who are obese tend to see an increased risk of infertility in, in that population. Mm. And the easiest way I, I explain it to patients is if you think of the brain and the ovary as two people having a conversation in, in a room, in an office. If you have, for example, in an obese patient, fatty tissue has an enzyme, it's called aromatase, it makes estrogen, and that estrogen interferes in that communication. So now all of a sudden, those two people having a conversation in the office are now having a conversation on two ends of a conference room where everybody's talking. So it just muddles the ability of the brain to effectively communicate with the ovary and vice versa. Wow. Okay. Yeah. This was a lot. Good stuff. Yeah, because I've been I've been hearing about like phthalates and parabens and yep. and all that stuff. So a colleague of mine, Dr. Lord, there's and there's a couple great reproductive specialists on social, um, but uh, there are you know some, for example, makeup. Um, if you look at makeup, there's actually and I posted about this a few weeks ago. Beauty counter. They do a great job. There's a couple other companies that really try to be strict in terms of how their products are developed and what's in them, trying to eliminate the presence of phthalates and parabens. Um, when you look at plastic, you'll see sort of, you know, BPA-free, things like that. That's all sort of encompassing in the same thing. So we talk about using glass containers instead of plastic containers as an easy switch out uh, mm. for daily regimen. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Ooh. I have learned a lot today. Um, I'm so glad to hear that some ways to, to have your hormones healthy um, or also to support fertility involves healthy lifestyle uh, changes. So guys, listen to your providers. They're trying to tell you to be active right. and to eat healthy and as much as possible, try to control some of the environmental toxins. Dr. Sweldo, how can our listeners connect with you to watch that great YouTube video you talked about or anything else that you have on socials? Yeah, yeah. So I am on YouTube. Um, the channel is just my name, Dr. Carolina Sweldo. So if you search my name, hopefully it should pop up. Um, and then I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. So on Instagram um, and Facebook both, you can find me as Dr. Carolina Sweldo. Yeah, so this has been another great episode. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Sweldo. We really um, appreciated having you on. We've learned a lot. I've learned a lot, and I have I've never given a thought to my fertility, so that that's good. <laughs> well, thank um, you so much for having me. I'm I'm glad. I hope it was helpful to your listeners. 
Oh, I, I'm sure it is. And for any of our listeners, please reach out to her, um, follow her on social media. Um, she's got, I mean, just, she's just a wealth of knowledge. Um, make sure to hit the subscribe button or the follow button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Follow us on Instagram at Nutrient Sisters and make sure to check out our website, NutrientSisters.com. Thanks again. And we hope to talk to y'all soon.